Podcast Radio. One second, I want to make you big screen so I can really relate to you. All right. I'm very handsome, Alan. I can see that. <laughs> That's Alan Alda and me preparing to record an interview about his podcast called Clear and Vivid for Podcast Radio. Mr. Alda is an American actor, director, screenwriter, comedian, and author. He has won six Emmy Awards, multiple Golden Globes, has also been nominated for a Grammy, an Academy Award, and multiple Tony Awards as well. He is perhaps best known as the character Hawkeye Pierce on one of the most beloved television shows of all time, MASH. He's had recurring roles on quality shows like ER, 30 Rock, The Blacklist, and as recently as this year, Ray Donovan. His acclaimed film work includes Same Time Next Year, The Four Seasons, Crimes and Misdemeanors, Flirting with Disaster, Bridge of Spies, and as part of the powerful ensemble cast of last year's Marriage Story, written and directed by Noah Bumbach. Alan Alda is also a visiting professor at the School of Journalism at Stony Brook University in New York. His podcast, Clear and Vivid, will show us how to connect better with others in every area of our life, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. Alan joined us from his home in Long Island. Well, I'm in central London right now, and it's I suspect we're all having the exact same life day after day. We're all doing the same things and living in the same lockdown, and there's not that much difference between your life, my life, or the next guy's life anymore. It's so interesting to be sharing an experience with people all over the world. I mean, I don't know if it's all over the world. I don't know how people in Bangladesh are handling this in Jakarta. But we're, there are millions and millions of us who are having the same daily experience. Where do you get your food, for instance? Right. I had to go to the post office the other day, and I didn't have a mask. So I used what was published on, on the Twitter as a comedy video of an Italian young man using cotton underwear to pull over, <laughs> his, pull over his head. And I figured out a way to get a double layer out of each leg, well, both legs. <laughs> I'm so used to asking people, how are you doing or how are you feeling? But I really feel like it's it's for real now because you want to do a mental health check on everybody you talk to to make sure they're not crawling out of their skin. Like, what are you doing to kind of stay safe during all this time? Insane, I guess I should say. What am I doing? I'm doing what I always did, only I'm doing it into a microphone. I'm, I'm uh, keeping social contact, in some ways more social contact with our friends. We get on Zoom with them. We're doing what probably hundreds of thousands of people are doing. We're having a cocktail hour with sure. our friends. Sure. And, and there's a lot of sharing of what you were just talking about. How are you doing? How are you getting by? How do you get your stuff? Mm-hmm. Toilet paper becomes an issue once in a while. Well, it's the new gold, yeah. isn't it? Never had so many conversations about toilet paper. <laughs> um, I want to ask you a question that will help me as an interviewer today. You've been doing these interviews for your podcast for a couple of years now. How do you get past the starstruck phase of who you are talking to and quickly get into the, yeah, we're just human beings all in this together, having a chat? I mean, even Alan Alda gets starstruck, I assume, by people like Paul McCartney, who you interviewed recently. Yeah, but that was a wonderful conversation with Paul. And it was wonderful because of how I would answer your question. The way to get past starstruck or stage fright or what am I going to say next? All kinds of things that can bother you if you're trying to do an interview in a situation like this. And what I rely on is what we teach when we teach communication, which is to put the focus on the other person, not on yourself. 
Mm -hmm. And the other person, the, the nature of that focus has to be your own true curiosity, I believe. So that if I'm, I mean, we're in Zoom right now and I'm looking at your face and I'm, I'm curious about you, about your life, how you got to that point of being behind that microphone. And I'm not, when I, when I think that, I'm not thinking how am I doing on my end of the conversation. I'm thinking about you and learning about you. Not drawing you out so much as just learning about you. The drawing out becomes a, you know, a necessary adjunct to that. It's, it follows on. So I just, I, I apply my curiosity to everything. And you must too. I mean, I heard it in our exchanges early on. Very much so. I think curiosity is underrated in terms of qualities in a person. It, actually, that does dovetail nicely into your podcast kind of came about through all of your years and how much you enjoyed interviewing scientists, right, on public television. Is that accurate, would you say? That's true. And there was a step in between because the work I did for 11 years on the television show on public television in the States called Scientific American Frontiers, the work I did there with hundreds of scientists made me realize that relating to them as a person, the same, same thing you just asked me about, that that could be the basis of training scientists to communicate better so the public would understand what they had to say, what they were doing in their work. And, would, and eventually we found out it helped them communicate with other scientists and with policymakers and funders. So that work led to my wanting to extend it further. So we did the podcast as a way of playing out those ideas in real time. We don't preach about it. We don't teach techniques on the show. We just have really good conversations with really interesting people. For sure. Yeah. The thing about curiosity and the reason I admire astronomers and oceanographers and biologists and all the rest is that they have this national curiosity about how things work. And then they devote their lives to trying to understand them. And it must, for them, feel like the most fascinating journey in the world, something that would be so difficult for us to comprehend. They can't wait to get in there, look through a microscope at, at uh, microbes and, and break them down. That's true. And they, the, the most common thing I hear about uh, that process from senior scientists is the feeling, the extraordinary feeling when they discover something and they know something that no one else has ever known on earth. And they describe that as a, as a kind of ecstasy. Sure. Imagine you're Clyde Tumbaugh and you've just discovered Pluto. For a few minutes, you're like, I'm the only person in the world who knows there's another planet out there. It must be amazing, <laughs> right? And it's named after a cartoon dog. <laughs> I think the dog actually was named after the planet, if I have my uh, math right on that. I do. <laughs> you're uh, probably right. I don't, I don't know the, the history of it. My uh, Twitter name is Clyde Tumbaugh. That's how much of a fan of Pluto I am, Alan. Really? So were you upset when it got downgraded? I understood the reasoning behind it, but I still would like a revote because I think it was shady the way the International Astronomical Committee did it with a bunch of people not there and whatnot. It was one. Of, it was almost like one of those midnight House of Representative votes where they're just trying to shove something through without any kind of oversight. <laughs> so you really take it seriously. I That's do. Great. It was very painful. It was a lot of people's favorite planet. What uh, <laughs> what kinds of science were you into as a young man? I was I was trying to do the math on your age, and I would imagine that the boom in like science fiction about space travel might have hit you at about the right age to kind of capture your imagination. Yeah, you know, I was never much interested in science fiction, uh, a little bit for a short time. 
but uh, there are these very well-known authors that a lot of people grew up on that I didn't. L later, in, uh, when I was no longer a kid, when I was in my early 20s, I was a big fan of Isaac Asimov. And when you, isn't he great? He's my favorite. Wasn't he great? I don't know why he's not still considered a huge star. It's astonishing to me. No one wrote better about more topics in the world ever than Isaac Asimov. Why is he not revered to this day? We come and go. There's a there's a wonderful cemetery in Paris called Père Lachaise where it, there are acres of people buried there with huge monuments to them. And you never heard of who these people. You never know. You don't know who they are. You see Oscar Wilde, you see Jim Morrison, and then the rest of them, you go, sorry, dude, don't get it. <laughs> but Isaac Asimov, as you know, wrote so brilliantly about the Bible and about Shakespeare and about science and about almost anything you can imagine. Yeah, there was he, he was extraordinary. But he was, as you, you said, that we all have somebody who knocks us out, who is famous to us and disorients us a little bit. And he was that for me. Mm. And just after MASH became popular, I was at some event and I bumped into Isaac Asimov and I heard myself saying, are you really Isaac Asimov? <laughs> and he said, yeah, you really Alan Alda? <laughs> Is there a scenario, Alan, where you could have seen some sort of alternate timeline had you not been born into and be bitten by the showbiz bug where you might've pursued a life in, in science? I have a feeling I wouldn't have been very good. I have curiosity. I think I may be lacking a little in a certain kind of rigor. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a writer and I'm rigorous about the writing and it's really important which word goes in what order. Mm -hmm. But that's a little different because I'm constantly getting feedback and I'm constantly free to strike out in a new direction. Whereas the, the, the scientist on, in the lab I get the feeling has to consign herself or himself to really boring work until they get the results that point them in a direction no one's ever gone before. It's like police detective work. There's so much tediousness to get to the yeah, truth. Yeah, I, I never wanted to be a policeman either. Yeah. So you, just pick, you pick two careers. And I had a list when I was a young man and I had to be a cab driver to make a living. And I was a clown outside of gas stations. And I developed a list of jobs that no matter how poor I got, I wouldn't take those jobs. I, the top of the list was laying asphalt in the street because I don't like the smell. All right. One more science question. And that is, what's the big question, the big unknown mystery that you will be really mad if it doesn't get answered in your lifetime? Something that you're waiting to get cracked. Well, I have Parkinson's, so I'd like to see a, a pill for Parkinson's or some treatment that's not invasive. You have spent so much time thinking about and trying to figure out ways to improve communication in your own life and in the lives of others. I know you've spent a lot of time and you've got classes that you teach. I mean, that's communication is a big, big thing for you. Why is there so much resistance from the public, some members of the public, on Dr. Anthony Fauci, who I know you had on the podcast not long ago as well, who comes out there and in plain English explains it like it is. He's an incredibly credible infectious disease specialist, yet there are still millions of people out there who want to discount what he's saying. Is it a communication problem or something else? I think it's a social problem, but a little bit different from a communication, although communication relates to everything. And in some ways it's a communication problem, but not a problem that Fauci has. He's, I think, a really excellent communicator. But one of the problems that is very difficult to surmount is when your definition of what's real and what's true comes more from a system of beliefs 
than it does from regarding evidence that's placed in front of you by reliable people. There, there are enough people in the, in the states who have come to distrust certain sources of information, which is to their detriment. And now in a, in, a, in a pandemic like this, it's detrimental not only to their health, but to mine as well and yours, even no matter where you are. As we record this in the middle of April, this is the week that thousands of motorists got in their car in Michigan and jammed the streets in open defiance of the governor of Michigan's orders to stay home. I mean, that's just saying, I'm ignoring your science. I believe in what I believe, and you can't change my mind. Yeah, and when we can't, it, it's a human trait. It, it needs to be dealt with in, in all our lives, I think. I think very often of uh, the uh, the Luddites in England when mills were just starting to manufacture cloth with looms on a large scale, on an industrial scale, and people would attack the looms and break <laughs> them up because technology was going to destroy their lives. Mm -hmm. They felt and was evil, and and couldn't couldn't get couldn't get accustomed to it. It's similar to me to putting what you would like to be true what you believe to be true ahead of what is plain as the nose on your face. Yeah, well said. This is the voice of Alan Alda, our guest here. Clear and Vivid Podcast is the podcast. We'll talk some more about some of the episodes you'll be hearing on podcast radio here in a few minutes. But first, let's get back to the podcast. You've been interviewed thousands of times, Alan, in your career. You've answered more yes. dumb questions than anyone should have to endure in a lifetime. There are no dumb questions. <laughs> what did you take away from all of that when you started sitting down on the question side of the microphone with your podcast? I'm sure that there were some things you knew you didn't want to do and other ways that you knew you did want to have a successful interview. Well, one of the things I, I've learned for me, from, for the way I work, from interviewing hundreds of, of scientists and, and regular people, civilians like us, is that it's not a good idea to come in for me to come in with a list of questions. I come in with a page that has 10 things I'm curious about on it. It helps me to write it down. And then all during the conversation, I never look at it. And when the conversation is over, I think, oh, I wonder if I covered all those points. And I look and I've covered every one because they are representative of my real curiosity about this person. And they come up in a different order because the the conversation takes a normal course. You say something that makes me think of something, and then I ask you about that, and that can take us in a different direction for a while, and then I, I realize I'm really curious about that part of it. And there's something something nice about treating it like a conversation that I think makes it different. It might be might be unusual for some people listening to it because I don't just ask questions and listen to answers. I respond. So I take part in the conversation. Sometimes it reminds me of an experience I had, and I wonder if that was shared by the other person. I don't dance away from the other person and do a solo. Try not to. Mm -hmm. But what I do do is to dance with them. Tell me if I'm wrong about this, but I would imagine your training as an actor helps in that way because you're used to making it sound like you're actually having a conversation with a person on stage or in a film instead of just reading your next prepared line. That's the thing that I learned about interviewing and communication in general from acting. The reason I say my next line when I'm on the stage is not because I've memorized it. It's not because it's in the script. It's because the other actor has said something or done something that makes me say it and makes me say it in a certain way. 
therefore, it comes out in a slightly different way every time because I hear it from the other person coming out of them in a slightly different way. If they're two good actors working together, that's what's going to happen. There's going to be a dynamic relationship with them where it's always in the same general area of, of how you all agreed on in rehearsal. But the flavors, the, the little uh, extra bits that are different each time, my reaction to you comes out differently and makes your reaction to that different. And it's alive. It's the way people talk when they're really talking to one another and not reciting, which is why when people read, it's just un unbelievably boring when, when they read because they're not talking to anybody. It's so interesting to hear you describe that way because I've always wondered why an actor would voluntarily do a Broadway show for five years and do the same script six times a week. But you've just explained that for that actor, it's different every time. That's right. People would sometimes come backstage to me in a long run and say, how do you do the same thing every night? I say, I, by not doing the same thing. <laughs> in fact, one time I, I was so curious about whether it was just my feeling that that's what was happening or, or, some, or something real was taking place where it was different. And I, I talked to one of the women who, was, who passed out uh, programs after the show one night. I said, is it different it feels different every night. Does it, does it look different? Because you see it every night. She said, oh, yeah, it's very different every night. How about that? Let me ask you about another technique I've noticed when I've listened to your podcast. The episode with Betty White was adorable for 98. Oh, my God. She's wonderful. She's great. She's wonderful. But you obviously made a decision, I think, to not bring up what would be the first things that most interviewers would bring up. There was never a mention of the Mary Tyler Moore show. There was never a mention of Golden Girls. There's never a mention of so many other things that she's well known for. Is that because as an actor yourself, you're not that interested in hearing her talk about her career? Or is it just that you're really more interested in her as a person than you are as, a, as an actor? I think that last thing you said is really, is really what drives me in a conversation. I, the people I talk to all have such a list of credits I mean, you can, every one I, I could name. And that could lead to a discussion of, well, what did you do in 1978? And now that brings us up to 1982. I've, I've had interviews like that, you know, where there's no exchange of anything. It's just reading your CV. Mm -hmm. And I'm interested in her as a person, this extraordinary person who's done, who has done these wonderful performances. I think it's more interesting to find out who she is rather than taking a trip down memory lane. And that's just my interest. But if I'm not really interested, it's not going to be an interesting conversation, I think. Don't you think Robert Redford owes her a visit at this point for as long as she's <laughs> openly fantasized about him? I, I mean, she's got this picture of Robert Redford in her office next to it's a life-size cardboard cutout next to a life-size cardboard cutout of a bear. <laughs> And so far, she's only had a relationship with the bear. <laughs> uh, do you have any lifelong crushes like Betty does for Robert Redford? Any? Uh... Not lifelong, but when I was a young man, and my wife used to kid me about it, I had a crush on Lee Volman. Oh, yeah. Norwegian actress. She's a wonderful actress, and she was so appealing in the movies that I saw her in, at those in those days. And I met her one night after MASH had hit, so I was well known, too. And I met her in the parking lot of a Chinese restaurant in Beverly Hills. And there were fumes coming out of the exhaust fan of Mugu Gai Pan. 
and it wasn't a romantic setting, but I was so smitten, so struck by meeting her in person. She was talking and I couldn't hear her. All I heard was the theme music from one of her movies. <laughs> and the smell of the Mughal guy pan turned into new mown hay in the field we were running across. And then after a while, all that lifted. And I heard what she was saying. And she was this very nice, ordinary person. She was a fellow actor. And <clears throat> it was such an interesting experience for me because I realized that we all have this ability to be dumbstruck by people who, for us, are figures of our dreams. They step off the screen right into our dream world. And if you see a dream walking, you get disoriented and confused. And I think that happens to all of us. You must have instances where you're that person for a fan and they freak out when they meet you and they can't believe they're in the presence of Alan Alda. Is it uncomfortable for you or do you have a way to neutralize the situation a little bit to make it easy for them to get through? It's hard sometimes. I, I, over the years, I've learned that I just have to be thoughtful about what they're going through, and it makes it a lot easier. But when somebody says, are you Alan Alda? And I say, yes, I am. And they say, no, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> I say, no, I am. They say, prove it. And what do you do? And I, I sort of drift away. <laughs> you got to start carrying your, uh, carrying your Emmys around, I guess. That's the only way you can actually <laughs> prove it. That's funny. Let me turn to, let me go back to communications for a second. Uh, Alan Alda here. The podcast is called Clear and Vivid Podcast, available wherever you get yours. And we'll be playing a bunch of episodes here on Podcast Radio in the, in the next uh, month or so, too. Um, let me turn it to politics for one second, because, and this goes back to communication again. What would you say to friends and, in my case, family members who are on different sides of the Trump divide right now? How do you navigate a conversation with them about politics? I mean, I'm a godless commie liberal, but my own brother would fly a Confederate flag on a pickup if he had one. I mean, he has a pickup. He doesn't have a Confederate flag. But we're so we see everything through the prism you know, of our media consumption maybe and have drawn completely different conclusions. But how do we have a respectful conversation without it getting ugly? Because I'm seriously, Mr. Alda, going through that right now. And it's it's very upsetting for me. I can imagine it would be. It's 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 hard when people are so split as they are now. And that and when that split enters a family, it's really painful. The only thing that I've seen that kind of works is to a great extent what we've been talking about which is listening and asking questions and not preaching. If at least one of you has the impulse to listen to the other and try to encourage the other to listen to you and to get under the cliches, why do you think that? Where did you get that information? That's interesting. Here's the information I have, but not be outraged by what you hear. You know, I have a radical idea and it's really tested when it's applied to the situation you just brought up. The radical idea is that I don't think I'm really listening unless I'm willing to be changed by the other person. That doesn't, doesn't mean I want to agree with them, but I want to let them in enough to enlighten me, maybe even just about how they got that way. Mm -hmm. I want to be able to understand them better. There may be something about the way they see things even if I don't agree with their conclusions, then I can learn from. That's a magnanimous way to approach it. I feel like we're at the point where we know neither is going to change the other's mind. So I wonder if it's even worthwhile to have that conversation. I'll send him an article from the Washington Post about something dreadful the president has done, and he'll just say, 
not true. Fake news. The media lies. See, the, the thing is, I agree that we probably can't change the other person's mind at, at, at the level you're talking about, the level of split. So let's not try to change each other's minds. Let's try to work together. You can work together. I mean, Catholics, Protestants, and Jews can work together. Look at the, all the jokes where the minister, the rabbi, and the, <laughs> the priest walk into a bar. Well, when this is all over, when the lockdown is all over, my brother and I are flying to your house and we're going to sit at a table and you're going to mediate and we're going to figure out some common ground, Alan. How about that? Let's go to a bar. <laughs> okay. Let's talk about some of the uh, episodes that we're going to be playing coming up on podcast radio. They have uh, some terrific episodes. I want to just mention the guest and then get a reaction from you about how that episode went and what you took away from that. And I want to start with well, since we're talking about politics, you sat down with former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright. And I just, I wonder, is it tough for somebody like her to be on the sidelines after being such a powerhouse in world politics for so long? I didn't ask her that. Okay. <laughs> I, should, I should hear your interview with her. That's good. What'd you take away from Ms. Albright? The wonderful buoyancy she has. You know, she had, she had for years she had, she was the, the most powerful woman in the country. In the, in the States, one of the most powerful in the world. And she wore that power lightly, I think, in many ways, and including the fact that she communicated her mood of the day by wearing a different kind of a pin on her lapel so that people she was going into a meeting with, sometimes adversarial people, would check out the dragon on her lapel or the flower and say, what am I supposed to get out of this? Yeah, good day or bad day, right? Yeah, she was communicating with them non-verbally before she ever opened her mouth. And that, that really fascinated me because she was using everything available to her to contact the other person. That's interesting. She could be tough. She could be understanding. She could be empathic. But she was always thinking about the connection with the other person. And that seems to me to be a really useful trait. British national treasurer Stephen Fry, intimidating because of his intelligence or no? No, but that's another example of, I thought it was a great opportunity to talk to this truly deeply intelligent and articulate person who was Stephen Fry. And I didn't have to be intimidated by how smart he was because I was, I was in the presence of somebody who I could just exercise my curiosity with and whatever I tossed over to him, he'd toss back to me. So he was, for me, just this big, marvelous cave that I could jump in and spelunk around in. You guys were making jazz together, it sounds like. Yeah, he's playful, and he's, uh, and, and he's thought deeply about a lot of things. And, and I, I loved how he was, because of his interest in the classics, he was able to talk about how classical myths are how we define who we are, and they apply to us even today. The, the tech, the spread of technology, I rem as I remember, the spread of technology he compared to opening Pandora's box. Those are some of the interviews that we'll be playing on podcast radio, including others like uh, Tom Hanks, Julie Andrews, Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, whose name I'm sure I pronounced wrong, is a, a Pulitzer Prize winner and trying to beat cancer in our lifetime. So fascinating chat still to come. Alan, do you mind if before we go, like you do on your podcast, if I ask you seven questions, but all about you, different questions than you ask your guests at the end of Clear and Vivid. Sure, sure. Happy to. I am a lifelong radio fanatic. 
It's what I've always wanted to do. I was one of those little kids with a transistor radio under the covers at age five. So it was my destiny to end up behind a microphone. And I was delighted to find out that you also had college radio experience at Fordham University. And I was wondering if you remember what was the first song you ever played on the radio and did you take it all to being a disc jockey? Oh, <laughs> no, I wasn't a disc jockey, but one of the shows I did was called, uh, I think it was called Front and Center. So every week you heard the opening bars of Oklahoma, which was, which was, was I loved the orchestration and it sounded very stirring. The opening was something like the, the violins were going, and I'd say, this is Broadway and you're front and center. <laughs> And, uh, and and then I wrote and, and directed uh, dramatic shows on the radio. I had a great time doing that. Oh, that's wonderful. As an actor, you have brought to life the words of many of the greatest writers of all time. Uh, David Mamet, Aaron Sorkin, Woody Allen, so many others. I was wondering, is there one that you can think of whose words are especially difficult to get your tongue around? Oh, everybody agrees David Mamet's it's words be Mamet. are very hard. I, it's almost his, his dialogue reads like the transcript of an improvisation or the transcript of normal conversation in an office where people don't know they're being recorded and are not making any special effort to finish the beginning of a sentence with, with a, a logical ending. They make little, little forays into sentences and then it's all strung together into one paragraph. And you don't know what they were trying to say originally and how they wound up where they are now. And you have to say it word for word. You have to remember every syllable of this thing that has to be imaginatively reconstructed. Very hard to do. Sounds like it. One actor said, when you try to learn a mammoth play, you want to kill yourself. <laughs> That's quite an endorsement. <laughs> but you would say it's worth it when you do it, right? Oh, yeah. He's a, he's a brilliant writer. When you are channel flipping and you come across yourself on a TV show or a movie, do you stop and watch it? No, I maybe for 15 seconds to mainly to see if I can remember what the show is about. I used to be able to remember if it was a show that I directed. Now I'm not always sure I can, and or I would remember it if I wrote it. Now I'm now I'm not sure if I even wrote it. It's so long ago. Sure. And I'm, I'm proud of what we did, but I don't spend time looking at it. Did your friend and MASH co-star, the late, great Harry Morgan, ever tell you any good Jack Webb stories from his days on Dragnet? He did. He had a wonderful story about Jack Webb. Harry was a very playful guy. And Jack Webb was super serious. And it was he was determined to get the show done. Drag, oh, Dragnet, yeah. He, and, and Webb was Sergeant Friday. That's right. So everything was highly regimented. And one day in the one shooting day, Harry made a small joke at the beginning of the day and, and Webb paid no attention. And 12 hours later, at the end of the day, Harry made another joke and Webb said, look, if you're going to keep fooling around like this. <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. Three more, Mr. Alda. What would your wife of more than 60 years, Arlene, say is the best thing about you? Oh, I, I, I have no idea. I don't know. She must like something she, at this point. Oh, she likes plenty. That's what that's what I'm constantly struck by, how, how loving she is. It's just great. You've got too much goodness. She can't narrow it down. You're too good. She, she hasn't seen me on my worst day yet. Uh, what does it feel like to be nominated for an Academy Award? Oh, it felt pretty good. I, I really uh, like that experience. It was an extraordinary time walking down the red carpet the night of the show. And I, I was completely at ease because I knew I wasn't going to win. And the, the way I knew that was that 
I went online and looked at the bookmakers odds in London and uh, Las Vegas. I forget who they had winning, but he, and he won, he actually won. So I, I had, was able to have fun. I didn't have to worry about making up a speech or anything. How do you forget who you lost an Oscar to? I would still, all these years later, be putting pins in a voodoo doll of that actor. <laughs> so, you know, it's very nice that they want to give you awards. But the next day, nobody remembers who, who got the award. It's, it, if they didn't give you a trophy, I, I wouldn't remember. Well, you just proved it. You just proved it that we don't remember who won the award. All right, final question. Uh, and again, you can find all of the details on Mr. Alda's podcast, Clear and Vivid Podcast, on his website or on ours with a complete schedule of when we're airing ours, how to hear his, and more. Last question, and that is, we are very interested in your customer satisfaction for this encounter. On a scale of 1 to 10, how likely would you be to recommend me for an interview to others? Oh, 100%. You give me a 10. No, I give you a hundred. <laughs> On a scale of one to ten, a hundred. That I can't do any better than that. <laughs> well, you are very kind, sir, and I cannot tell you how much I've enjoyed this. Through the miracle of modern technology, I'm in London, you're in the United States, and here we are, just a couple of guys just having a chat. This has really been fun, sir. I'm sorry all the pubs are closed. We could have a pint. Another time. Great chatting with you. Best of luck on the podcast and stay well, my friend. Thanks so much. I'm so glad to be on your station. It's just wonderful. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Podcast Radio. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional Book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading! reading.